listening to The Cooler Ring, a podcast made for manufacturing marketers. Here are Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Welcome to The Cooler Ring, a podcast for manufacturing marketers brought to you by Cooler Partners. My name is Jeff White and joining me today, as always, is Carmen Perry. Carmen, how are you doing, mate? Uh, doing well, doing well. Uh, we're a little snowed in here in Halifax for the first time this year. Uh, so um, there's the Canadian in me having to talk about weather. <laughs> but at the very least, it will be almost 70 degrees on Thursday. So look you at know, you it, like converting over for our I'm U.S. Just, friends with the whole 70. I want to be relatable. You know, yeah. you have to go beyond being Canadian sometimes, Carmen. <laughs> if you want to be relatable, that's for sure. <laughs> There's nothing less relatable than a Canadian, really. No, like, it's true. You guys are like up there. Jokes, what do you though? do up there, really? I mean, you're kind of like us, but you're not like us at all. Um, <laughs> Understood. Understood. But uh, <laughs> I do think we have an interesting, um, interesting guest and an interesting approach to a show coming up today, though. You know, because I... Are you approaching the show differently? Well, no, I don't think the show approach is necessarily different, but just kind of how how her job is shaped may be a bit different than uh, some of the marketers we get to talk to. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, let's uh, introduce our guests and get on with it. I'm excited. All right. So joining us today is Amy Cooper. Amy is the Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Atlas Carbon. Welcome to the Cooler Ring, Amy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Amy, it's awesome to have you on the show. Um, let's, uh, let's start by a, a bit more of a formal introduction to you and to Atlas Carbon, if you would. Uh, tell us what you all are up to there. Well, Atlas Carbon manufactures activated carbon products that are used in air and water purification applications to create a cleaner and healthier world. Um, we have patented technology, our pneumatic flash calcination process that um, is an innovation in the way activated carbon is made. And, um, you know, we are seeking to make innovative products that help people create a cleaner environment for us all. I think it's worthwhile to just to kind of explain a bit what activated carbon is used for, because, you know, when when I first saw that you were coming on the show, I thought, oh, carbon. And I, you know, as a bike geek, I was thinking carbon fiber, but it's totally different than that. So activated carbon is a filtration product, basically. And I don't mean the container that holds the filter. I mean, what's inside of that filter is frequently activated carbon. So the, the black um charcoal looking material inside of the filter is activated carbon. And so it's made from coal or um, other materials. Sometimes it's made from wood or coconut shells, rice hulls, all sorts of, of carbon containing materials. But coal is the primary raw material used to make it. And I want everyone to envision popcorn. Imagine popcorn. A kernel of popcorn is a particle of coal, okay? So we take that coal and we superheat it up above its critical temperature and it pops and it forms that piece of popcorn that you and I would eat. And all of those nooks and crannies in that piece of popped popcorn 
capture impurities from the air and the water. That's how activated carbon works. So when you run your drinking water through it or you use it to brush your teeth or, or use a face mask or we put it in, you know, in, the, in the silo or in the air exhaust system for um, a chemical plant, it's capturing the impurities and holding them in all of those nooks and crannies. It's uh, I, I love your uh, introduction to the technology, and it's uh, it's incredibly clear. Um, and uh, and that's probably required in an industry that's making cleaner air and cleaner drinking water using something that's been demonized as much as coal. Absolutely, we like to think that we're taking coal and moving it from the naughty list to the nice list. It's a perfect circle, frankly, of sustainability. You take coal and use it to make a product that cleans up the waste from using coal. Um, <laughs> power plants use coal to generate electricity, and then they use activated carbon made from coal to clean up the exhaust from doing that. Mm. It's, it's a, actually kind of an, a beautiful thing. I know uh, uh, this isn't an environmental podcast, to be clear, but I mean, I, I would think that even if you're using wood or coconut shells, there's still an environmental impact of that, of course. It's not like the activated carbon comes without a, an environmental footprint in those categories either. Oh, exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we won't beat up on coal any more than we will the coconut shells. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but I, I do think it's interesting though, because it does mean that from a raw material perspective, you are competing against those who are using it for, for other uses that are not necessarily as clean as, as uh, what Atlas is up to. Absolutely. And um, so the coal market for us, because my particular company, Atlas Carbon, we, we manufacture product in the United States at, at our facility. Um, and our facility is located in Wyoming, which is which is kind of the heart of, of the largest deposit of coal in the United States. And there is a lot of pressure for that coal because the coal does go for power um, applications. The primary use of coal today is heating and cooling and, and power of, and fueled by power generation. Um, but with some of the geopolitics that are happening around the world, quite a bit of coal is exported um, outside of the United States. I think people don't realize that. The price of coal has increased about 30% over the past year. And most of that's driven by the demand for coal export. So, um, you know, I, I only have my own opinion. But I don't believe that's going to stop anytime soon, e either the export or the cost of coal increasing. That's an interesting dynamic as we think about the, um, uh, the kind of uh, nationalized industrial policy, uh, kind of um, seeing more and more of, um, uh, you know, the type of even in the State of the Union address recently, you know, by, uh, by American being emphasized and things of that sort. And it's like. Here's an example where the, 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 the that that's kind of operating uh, in, in the opposite direction. That like there, 
the, the fact that we're exporting this is making it more difficult for us to use that resource domestically. And have and having a negative impact, oddly, on the uh, greening of the economy along the way. It's making it more expensive for us to green the economy. I guess uh, we could, we got to be careful. We don't try to turn this into a, another edition of like CNN Crossfire or something. <laughs> Absolutely, but you know, I to the point that you're making, the State of the Union was was interesting. Um, one of the things that President Biden said, and, and it's come across a couple of times, is that he does not believe that oil and, and that use of oil and coal is going to end anytime, you know, sooner than at least 10 years from now. I, I don't remember the exact words that he used, but he alluded to the fact that we were looking at use of oil and coal for at least another decade. And again, my belief is that it will be longer than that because we do need a baseline of power to fuel, you know, our, our citizenry and our economy and renewables are fantastic. Let's use them as much as we can possibly can. But, you know, instantaneous power demand when there are peaks comes from nuclear and it comes from, from coal and natural gas power and, so I don't think we're going to immediately be able to remove these things. Um, so I, I believe that of the 600, there were 600 coal-fired power plants in like 2010. And today there are 200 left, 220. You know, I don't know how much lower we can go and still maintain the base that we need to, to fuel our power grid. Of reliability, yeah, exactly. And just so people know, I mean, it's not like this is a... Uh, kind of a sidebar conversation about politics. This is this is directly impacting your um, uh, ability to compete as you're competing against carb, uh, uh, activated carbon that's being produced by other materials. Exactly, and yes, I mean this is <laughs> this is what I think about every day as a consumer of of this raw material, and as I think about our strategy um, to as a fairly new company. Our company had its first commercial sales in 2016. We're, we're the new kid on the block in this space. And, you know, as, as we think about what is the strategy to grow in a fairly commoditized and fairly mature market? How do you do that? You know, you have to pay attention to, to the market forces around you. Well, and the, I guess let's dive into that. How do we do this? I mean, uh, it, it's a it, it's a fairly mature category. Um, you mentioned that you brought some kind of new innovations to the the, the market. Do the, are those innovations? Uh, excuse my ignorance, but are those innovations that the, uh, the the that that are that the buyer actually realizes some performance difference, uh, or is it more innovation in the production of the activation of carbon? It. it Great question. Um, it's more of an innovation in the production process. I, the end consumer, be that you know, a individual consumer of of a product made with activated carbon, or our direct transactional partners, the water treatment facilities, power plants, cement plants that buy from us, they just need it to work. They've <laughs> and and. 
So it's the process, it's the innovation. Well, that must make your job even harder. But I'm good at it. <laughs> I like to pay a lot of attention to megatrends. You've, you've probably had guests that talk about global megatrends. And there are a couple things that are really driving use of activated carbon. And, and we lean very heavily into those. Um, the first is the regulatory environment. So there are very specific guidelines for different impurities that can be released um, as part of the Clean Air Act in the United States. Um, in particular, one of those, the mercury and air toxic standards limits the amount of mercury that, that can be released into the atmosphere. And activated carbon is, is the primary way to clean that up. So there's natural organic market growth that's occurring because of um, regulations from the U.S. government. There's a, a large new opportunity coming that, that Atlas Carbon anticipates. Um, the EPA is, has been talking for several years now about their intent to start regulating several new contaminants in water, in the water supply for, for the safety of, of all of us. Um, one of the primary compounds that they want to start limiting are, are perfluoro compounds, PFAs, the forever chemicals. Um, and for the first time, they're going to put a, we believe they're going to put a limit on how much PFA can be in drinking water. And, and that too is primarily treated with activated carbon and will drive a significant amount of organic growth. In fact, the, um, the recently passed infrastructure, I'm, I'm reading this infrastructure investment and jobs act includes $150 billion for building the infrastructure to do the cleaning that is going to be required of water because of the EPA regulation that may happen. So my job as a marketer and, and, and as the strategic leader for my business is to figure out how to capitalize on that to, to fuel our growth. I mean, this isn't a common skill set. Even amongst senior marketers, you know, the people people at the level that you're at and have been doing it as long as you have and with the, an understanding of the industry that you have, because you, you have spent quite a, a long time in the chemicals industry and, and uh, have a deep understanding of that. But I mean, it's rare for a marketer to have to be looking into government pollution acts and, and other regulatory structures and things like that and look at those from a strategic marketing and sales standpoint and say, how can I, how can I leverage this? How can I stay ahead of the curve? How can I be um, someone who has a deep understanding of this? Because if you don't in the industry that you're in, I think you'd be, you'd be sunk. It would be difficult, wouldn't it? Um, you know, I'm, I am very fortunate to have started my, I'm a, one, I'm a chemical engineer. So I, 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 sir, I have a technical background, but I have a strong marketing orientation. <laughs> I, I started my career in a manufacturing role as a plant engineer 
and very quickly learned that what I loved doing much more than making the products was helping customers use them more effectively. And, and ultimately, I, I began focusing more and more on business development um, type work because I loved the challenge of hunting down new opportunities and, and zeroing in on them. But um, I started my career with DuPont um, and worked for DuPont for more than 20 years before my part of the company spun off into a new standalone, Camores. Um, and then ultimately I left Camores because I, I and, and joined Atlas Carbon, um, which was a change because I went from, you know, very large Fortune 500 companies to kind of a small startup. And, and that... <laughs> That, that's probably a whole podcast in and of itself, the, the difference between large companies and small ones. But let me go back to DuPont and say that, you know, I was very fortunate to work in a company that had a very strong product stewardship and regulatory bias. And I learned to pay attention to not only the drivers for my specific product, but to pay attention to the, you know, the larger world that was impacting those products. Not because I personally thought of that. It was just, that's how DuPont thought. And so I got trained in that skill set. It's a, it's, I think it's interesting to consider um, the dynamics of a DuPont versus Atlas in this um, in this context. So stand, stand, bear with me for a moment. But mm -hmm. I mean, you talk about paying attention to the regulatory environment, and of course, you know, both of the examples that you cited are examples that uh, point to a, a regulatory-driven um, market expansion, organic market growth that is you know, likely to occur as a result of uh, of regulatory shifts. And a company like DuPont, of course, is in most of the categories they're in, they're often the leaders in that category. Like if they're competing in a category, they're, they're, they're number one in it often. Yes. And therefore, when the category grows, well, they get most of the growth because they're the leader. Um, the flip side of that, of course, with your at, when you're Atlas Carbon and you're not the leader in the world of, of activated carbon, how do you think about making sure that Atlas Carbon gets more than their fair share of the growth that comes with those expanded regulatory markets? Or is just the fair share of growth enough for a company the size of Atlas Carbon, I suppose, might be the contrary point of view? Wow. Um, probably a fair share. It, it, perhaps a fair share is enough, but who among us? who among us is ever happy with our fair share? You know, I, Amen. Yes. <laughs> so, we're marketers. Fair share is not what we're after here. Exactly. We want, we want more. Um, so in that environment, you have to realize that um, you have to pick your target markets carefully, right? So I'm a big fan of, of, focusing on specific target spaces. Water, with all of the regulatory environment, water is the sexy new toy, right? Let's develop technologies and all of our marketing campaigns to focus on water. 
Um, so Atlas Carbon is, is a distant number four U.S.-based manufacturer of activated carbon, right? Our, our three largest competitors are multiple times bigger than we are. They're all very interested in water and, and developing products and offering, offerings for that space. So I need to put my foot in that door also, right? I have to participate in that space but I'm not going to try and compete with them. I'm going to have a me too offering, right? Me too. I can do that and get my foot in the door. But I believe that a smarter play is to pay attention to the markets that they're no longer interested in. They're that are less attractive to them. Our opportunity to grow faster is to, is to focus on the spaces that are no longer significant to them but for us still provides significant new opportunities to grow and expand. So it's really looking at that crosshair of, you know, where the regulatory changes may be driving a market growth, but um, they're maybe not the areas that the competitors are mostly focused on from a product development or innovation standpoint. Yes. Yes. You know, it is interesting to consider the idea of, continuing to watch areas of the market that maybe aren't the shiny object any longer and uh, and continue to service those areas in a way that is better than the competition that is kind of trailing behind um or just by virtue of you're the one only one paying attention to that yeah you know, kind of stand out as a result yeah 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 i do believe it as a small company again uh, again i grew up um in an environment where there was a virtually unlimited research and development budget and and funds for marketing and introducing legislation and and technology and regulation around those innovations. Now, at a small company, I don't have those resources, right? I don't have those resources to do that work. So I need to focus on selling the products that I have effectively, right? Let's sell what we have um, well and, and to the maximum extent possible. And sometimes that means staying loyal. Uh, that, I know that's an emotional word, but staying loyal to a market like um, mercury removal and, and coal-fired power. It's not really sexy anymore, but a lot of people need it. (laughs) So let's focus on serving the needs of those people. Is part of that strategy, I mean, we we see this a lot with, you know, companies that get really well aligned from a niche and and kind of, uh, you know, account-based revenue kind of competency side where the marketing sales and also the customer service side of things are, are like deeply aligned. Do you find that in this kind of space where, where you are going after those areas that still need to be served very well, that you can elevate that and that that is as much part of the marketing strategy as, you know, advertising or, or direct sale? Absolutely. Because uh, these are finite markets, right? They, there are, there are a finite number of customers, and so relationships are incredibly important. Um, you know, word of mouth matters. And 
even in the in the Zoom world, much more remote world that we're living in, you know, travel face-to-face engagement is so much less than it has been in the past. But those conversations that you have with people over video chat or on the phone really matter. Relationship, the need to have strong relationships has never gone away and it never will in a sales environment. (laughs) You know, you just can't get around it. I think all of us are loyal to brands and people that we know. That's a that's like a, a whole uh, different episode that we could pull up uh, here because I got like I, I I desperately want to formulate a very contrary point of view and then argue with you about this. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen him do it too. <laughs> Thank you for being kind, not doing it. Well, no, but but uh, well, I won't do it then. But what I will say is that I I do find that some of the. Um, I think it's fun to play with the emphasis on relationships mm-hmm. uh, in sales um, uh, because I've, I'll beat up on the odd salesperson I've uh, found in my career who seemed to think that relationship was the only thing they could bring to the table and didn't have any like product or category knowledge or further there, uh, you know. Uh, and I, I always find it an interesting, uh, a, an interesting bit of banter um, uh, to think about that, but. Um, with respect to the finite market and Jeff's commentary around um, sales, marketing, and service working in, a, in in concert, I really think there's a missing secret sauce in the relationships that are built with the technical service people. Um, th- those people that aren't sales people at all, the technical service that the, the, the people that, that help you use the product better or help you. Uh, you know, figure out the challenges in, in 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 those early onboarding stages or whatever. If you can find a way um, to unleash those people as secret salespeople, I have almost always found there's um, there's secret sauce in that. I suppose is the way I would say. Uh, I agree with you a thousand percent. That is such an important part of any account team, that relationship that the technical service organization has with the customers. Um, I actually think that, uh, in my experience, technical service people should be assigned accounts that have very specific account responsibilities and and a sales partner. um, It's a team. (laughs) Frankly, Your customer service rep who takes the orders and issues the invoices, the technical service engineer, and the account manager, you know, they make up a relationship. It's it's not any one. And it's everybody expects a salesperson to be selling. Yes. Right? Yes. So, you know, so there's that that works and there's a place for it and all of that. But my goodness, like the the technical service person, nobody expects them to be upselling in in the ways that they're capable of doing it. Yeah. Yes. Um, but I appreciate you saying about the notion of, you know, really, is it uh, driving revenue in these kind of finite niche categories? Really, is a team sport, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and well, I feel that way very strongly, and always have, and I find it the most successful way. 
to have longevity in a relationship. I know this is a very standard sales phrase, but you know, it, it costs just as much, if not more to get a new customer than to keep an old one. Um, and, and you have to do both, right? I mean, you have to find the balance in both, but let's keep, keep what you have first and then go. When you're talking about the fact that there's only 220 coal, coal powered, coal fire powered, I don't even know. You got coal it. fire power plants. You got it. You got it. Yeah. In, in the U S right now, you know, losing one means losing like a, you know, half a percent yes. of the possible <laughs> people you can sell to. So, yeah. you know, I, I think it's a, you know, staying on top of that is certainly a major, major deal. I'd be curious, um, uh, as we're kind of wrapping up to the end of our time together, I'm kind of opening up this can of worms, but I'm just kind of thinking, you know, you've seen, uh, uh, you know, we spent a, a, a quite a bit of time with DuPont. Um, so you, you've seen this kind of team of sport at, at work in, in different contexts. Yes. I, I guess, have you... Can you think of a characteristic or what would, when you thought, when you've seen it working really, really well, what ingredient was at play that maybe wasn't at play when you haven't seen it working as well? I'm kind of curious, like, is there a secret to really good synchronization of that revenue team? In my experience, it works best when the people involved feel personally invested in the work. And actually, I don't really even think it matters what work you're doing. Um, I feel like you have to be personally motivated and and excited about the work that's happening. It's not just a job. And, And I realize chemical sales, you know, some people would say it's not a very exciting or interesting place to work, but it always has been to me. Um, and I find that I have always been most successful when I'm surrounded by other people who are also energized by creating opportunities for everybody to win, 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 win scenarios. I want the customers to win, the finished consumers to win, you know, my company to win, my customers company to win. Everybody needs to win. And when that's not going to happen, when everybody's not equally motivated to make that happen, it never works as well. Um, So, you know how you can get people who just come to work to do the job? They arrive at nine, they leave at five, they do everything they're supposed to do, but their heart's not in it. So maybe actually the secret ingredient is passion. (laughs) Passion for the work. I I love that as an answer when when I think I'm asking a question that could like, result in some sort of interesting comp structure or weird KPI that's being measured across. It's like, no, no, no. It has nothing to do with that, you fool. Multilateral wins. That's all it is. Everybody got to win. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Amy, this has been uh, a fascinating chat. It's been great to have you on the show and um, uh, get the benefit of your expertise. It's just, uh, I I feel like we could continue chatting for another uh, half hour here. I am in sales. Be careful. I, I can find plenty to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so much, Amy. Thank you. All the best. All right. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to The Cooler Ring with Carmen Perry and Jeff White. Don't miss a single manufacturing marketing insight. Subscribe now at coolapartners.com slash the cooler ring. That's K-U-L-A partners.com slash the cooler ring.